This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. No doubt over the last week you've heard the Prime Minister spruik the manufacturing benefits of the new submarine deal. The scale, complexity and economic significance of this investment is akin to the creation of the Australian automotive industry in the post-World War II period. And just as the vision of my predecessors, Curtin and Chifley, in creating our automotive industry lifted up our entire manufacturing sector, this investment will be a catalyst for innovation and research breakthroughs that will reverberate right throughout the Australian economy and across every state and territory. So will it? Will these fiercely debated subs generate jobs, skilled trades and training opportunities? Is this the biggest manufacturing announcement since World War II and how simple is it to get up and running? How ready and capable are we? Is this a huge opportunity or just huge political spin? This is 7.30's Laura Tingle. There was a lot of talk about historic investments and unprecedented ties in San Diego today. At times, you'd almost be forgiven for thinking the US President and Australian Prime Minister were talking mostly about a major manufacturing initiative. It took UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to mention the elephant in the room. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, joining you from ABC Canberra political correspondent Brett Worthington. Brett, a warm welcome to the conversation Our First things first. Hello, Rochelle. Now, is this just political spin or is this a huge opportunity? Because if the Productivity Commission is right, today they released a report that found, I'm going to quote here, that said there were problems in defence spending due to the complexity of much of the equipment, the need for a high-skilled workforce and the costs associated with integrating new technologies with old. This meant in almost all cases... Australia should avoid building its own defence equipment. So they're not really mincing their words here. I mean, who do we believe, the Prime Minister or the Productivity Commission? There's a little bit of both in this instance where there is a clear political element that Labor is very conscious of it's to do with national security and being frankly terrified that the coalition would launch a political attack on it, that it's weak on national security. So it's why you saw Labor so quickly adopt uh, the AUKUS deal in opposition. I think it was 24 hours from when it was announced to when Labor was backing it in. But if you look at the, the history of Australia and defence manufacturing, yes, there's been a lot of jobs over the years. But look at the Collins-class submarines. These are the submarines that will be uh, retiring out as the nuclear ones come in. To start with, cost blowouts, time blowouts, absolute shockers in a lot of regards. Now, over the decades, they've proven themselves and they've turned out to be a fairly decent submarine. But if you look at defence projects more generally, it is billions and billions and billions of dollars that is so often uh, not going into necessarily where it ultimately was pledged to be. The costs blow out, the time blows out, and there's real little scrutiny in this place, frankly, uh, at those billions. If it was a different program, Mm. you suspect there'd be a lot more questions being asked. Not only that, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge, and we'll go through that with a lot of our guests today. But in the time frame that we're talking about, there could be big political changes in terms of who's running which countries. Yeah, absolutely. You could see um, both change in America with, say, Donald Trump returning to the presidency and who knows what that would mean. A lot of people are reading the tea leaves there trying to imagine what that would be. You can't predict that. Same here in Australia. Now, as much as you have uh, bipartisanship at the moment, we're talking up to 2060. Who knows what our political landscape looks like? Uh, If you had gone back a decade, would have Mm. you imagined a crossbench the size that you've currently got? I doubt you would have predicted that. So who knows what we'll be like in, in, in those many decades to come. And I think more generally, you're in an environment where who knows what our economy is going to look like in a year, let alone what it's going to look like in, in decades to come. And when we're starting at $368 billion as the starting element of the top end, uh, you'd almost be shocked if it came in under that price. The thing I also feel within this announcement is that I feel like Victorians in particular, we have an emotional connection to the manufacturing world, to the automotive manufacturing world and the loss of it we still feel quite hurt about, you know, and that we often talk about and and reminisce about it and we wish it back to some level. And I wonder too whether there was anything behind 
that sort of playing on the emotional side of it going well imagine if we can go back to our heyday you know where we are manufacturing like we were in when we you know we were cars were coming off the assembly line like make victoria make again that whole slogan around this is what we do best and we can do it again and I think you've you've got that in a time when you're coming out of a pandemic and people are quickly wanting to rush back to what life looked like beforehand and a pandemic that showed that when you don't have complete control of the supply chain, I mean complete control down to producing the screws that go into everything, then th- your destiny is potentially not in your hands and there is a lot of that push to get back into manufacturing. But it also sits in an environment where... We're talking a big picture national security in billions and billions and billions at a time when a lot of families out there are unsure how they're going to both pay their bills and keep food on their tables. And that's why that job element is so important from a government to be selling because while a lot of people might not care about the national security, they care about the jobs element. And I think that's why you'll hear more about the jobs than necessarily what you'll hear about China and and what these submarines might mean. So today we'll speak to people who would potentially benefit from the submarines being manufactured here in Australia. How possible do they believe it is. And how do you feel about it? Do you think that we should be making submarines in Australia? Do you work in the area? Do you work in an industry that could potentially benefit from this announcement? Or maybe you heard the announcement and you think, I would like to train, I would like to gain skills and to work in submarine manufacturing. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. What this will do is highly sophisticated manufacturing will lead to a renaissance of value manufacturing in Australia, uh, the, that, that money, that economic activity stays right here. And that's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, speaking with Raphael Epstein just last week. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, joining you from ABC Canberra, Brett Worthington. We're looking at what do you think this is, the biggest opportunity that we've seen since the automotive industry, the automotive manufacturing industry here in Victoria. How will those on-flow effects, how will they impact you, good or bad? one three hundred triple two seven seven four. 444 Brett, before we have a chat to our first guest, I mean, in a previous life, you worked with the Country Hour and as a regional reporter, you understand the importance of jobs and job security to regional Victorians. And when the Prime Minister speaks about those on-flow impacts, we saw that with the automotive industry. You know, a small example I can think of is that a, a rubber factory went under in Bendigo because, you know, a Ford closing down. And Bendigo is a long way from Geelong. So when you look at those on-flow impacts and jobs for regional Victorians, it could be a great opportunity. Well, and Bendigo is a really interesting example because um, many lives ago I was a um, newspaper reporter in Bendigo and I had no idea that Bendigo was a hub of defence manufacturing. The Bushmaster, which uh, is talked a lot about at the moment because the Ukrainian um, uh, military wanted to gain access to it. It's a, a vehicle that saved a lot of lives in, in the Middle East conflicts. I had no idea it was produced in Bendigo. There are industries like that which are both building these big-scale uh, pieces of equipment, but then also, like you say, someone's got to produce the screws that go into yes. those into those vehicles. Someone's got to produce the clothing that soldiers will wear that will wear uh, in those in that equipment. And I had no idea about the broader flow-on effect. And it's something that you see, say, in rural communities where you've got a big farming base. And not everyone in town is a farmer, but as soon as you see a drought hit, the flow-on effect is that if a farmer is spending less money, they're not coming in and maybe going to the news agency or buying that coffee anymore. And then suddenly it's hit the retail sector and these huge flow-on effects come from uh, a, t- a downturn in one part that you wouldn't imagine would yeah. affect a, a service-based industry. And then you also have to think, okay, how far back have we stripped? How long have these industries been shut down? You can't just reignite them instantly and have it up and running again. You know, you need to build it from the ground up again. Speaking of Geelong, Peter's called us from Geelong. Good morning. Good morning. How are we today? Well, what did you want to say? Um... I just want to comment on the apprentice training scheme at the moment and the lack of technical schools. Um, I work for a, a service industry and we struggle to get boilermakers and, and people applying for apprenticeships. Um, we find that the kids have got no mechanical aptitude. Um, the problem is I think it stems back to when they got rid of the technical schools mm. um, and everyone had to go to a high school and, and go to university. Um, we're struggling to find kids that have got aptitude to get into trades. 
Well, not um, only that, Peter, know. once people get into an apprenticeship, they drop out. I think the, the dropout rate is something as high as 50%. A lot of that's got to do with the wages of apprenticeships. But I think tech schools... 100% comes in to, to this conversation and whether or not we're ready. Just finally, Peter, I mean, what if we, I mean, Anthony Albanese, our Prime Minister, is saying this is an opportunity to get skilled labourers, to train up a new workforce. Is this an opportunity to rebuild? It is, but where are we going to get the people from? The kids aren't interested in getting their hands dirty anymore. We've got to reintroduce the tech schools the way they used to be, where the kids actually did woodworking and metalworking and, and sheet metal as part of their I'm old school form one to form five or form mm. six um, you don't get that anymore and the kids just don't have the skills or the knowledge of what what's out there Peter thank you Brett you're nodding along there and I mean I remember tech schools vividly when I was growing up in in Gippsland a lot of those shut down I think pretty much every boy I knew either was or wanted to be a boiler maker and <laughs> or their dads were boiler makers like and I don't know how many people are boiler makers in Gippsland now but you, they, I've well, seen that change and I'm an, my I'm my and, and my two brothers are examples of this my dad is an electrician his dad was an electrician we didn't go into the trades when uh, I was in year 11 and 12 was I think the early years of the v, um, Victorian certificate of applied learning um, and you were seeing people having a greater connection with both trade and and while still being at school but I think that one of the issues that Peter identifies is how you get people into these trades now if you want someone to have a career change and to go into apprenticeship wages if they've got children uh, and yes. schooling it's in expensive way. You've got to take a pay hit. Uh, And you see election after election, we see all these ideas that both sides of politics put up in terms of getting younger people into trades, but also getting older people back in. None of them seem to ultimately lead to a boom in in these sectors. And I think that if the government of whatever persuasion is serious about the job side of it, they're really going to have to tackle getting people into these kinds of this kind of work. If you are someone that had a mortgage, there is no way you would consider taking up an apprenticeship. I mean, let's face facts, it doesn't even matter if it's a mortgage, even renting. Either way, you are responsible for paying for that roof over your head. And if you have other people that are relying on you, so children, the apprenticeship wage just isn't high enough. Cameron Johnson is the Managing Director of Rowland's Metal Works. Cameron, when we talk about the on-flow effects and who this will potentially benefit, when you heard the announcement from Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, do you believe that you will benefit from this? Oh, good morning, uh, Rochelle and Brett. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my, the, I have to be honest with you, the, the first thing that went through my mind was, my goodness, where are we going to find all this uh, this staff that we require? Um, and I was listening with great interest to what uh, Peter in Geelong was talking about, uh, bringing back vet schools and, and these sorts of things. So, yes, we, we will definitely be the recipient of some of this work. Uh, but my my mind went to uh, you know the, the the downside of that is just just how do we uh, how do we find these people? So Cameron, what would you do to try and if you were the prime minister for a day, what would you what would a program you would want to do to try and encourage people into these into these? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that would be that would be poor news for the country if I was prime minister for the day. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, you give it a go. Uh, yeah, but I'll give it a crack. Um, I think I think. Uh, I've said to uh, some politicians in the past, we need to bring back the sexy. It, it, it is actually okay to do a manual job. Uh, we have uh, contact with vet schools locally, and so often do I. I get the feeling that uh, the the selection of a uh, a manual job is is the job of last resort, and I and I and I think that's a really disappointing thing. There's actually. Uh, burgeoning careers here and and I think of of our staff who have have had an apprenticeship who who've worked on the floor and and now they're account managers for me and and I'm sending them overseas to defense trade fairs and oh, wow. there really is there really is things that that can happen and uh, we can't all be uh, computer technicians and accountants um, we actually do need someone to bend and fold steel, which, of course, is what we do. Jan in Frankston sends a text saying, my generation of teachers went on strike over the closing of tech schools and now we're seeing the result. Cameron, as someone like yourself who is the, the managing director of a metalworks company, does an mm. announcement like we've seen for building these subs 
give you the confidence to then take on more staff, to bring in apprentices, to train people up, to send them overseas for, to get more skills in areas? Does it give you that confidence to expand your business or is that something that worries you? Well, Rochelle, if I'm still uh, Prime Minister for the day, yes. <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of the things that uh, really upset me in this whole submarine saga uh, was the, uh, the sort of resolute rejection of the French option. And, and as, a, as a business owner, I, I'd spent quite a lot of time uh, going across to France to meet uh, would-be French companies who who will be part of the uh, supply chain, and 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 you know we'd spend a lot of hours and and you know a little bit of cash for sure, but but that was all torn up in a in a second. Now, uh, if this is the line in the sand, uh, I need that certainty. I need I need to be sure that 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 uh, that decision uh, to change our minds is. Is a bit of an aberration, and and here we go. We're we're moving forward. So, so uh, as a business owner, I've got to I've got to, you know, I've got I've got to make a decision whether we think we are going to build these in the 2040s or whenever they come along, uh, and I'll get myself ready. So, so defence has warned me a little bit, but I I, I absolutely I'll be part of it, uh, and indeed I've got. Uh, someone in Japan at a defence trade fair this week, and and I'm going to Washington for a trade fair in the first week wow. of, in April. So we're you know we're voting with our pockets, if you like. So Cameron, one of the changes with going from the French option to the now AUKUS submarines is, uh, from the submarine perspective, we'll still have the same number of submarines we'll be getting access to them but the domestic production side of it will be a bit later than maybe it would have otherwise have been what does that mean for someone like you who is potentially scaling up for production that would have been happening sooner and now you could be looking at you know five ten years later uh, in how you're planning for that uh, well, I guess I guess uh, I guess we'll just continue to do what we did when the French deal was was wrapped up uh, we 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 went a bit cool on defence. We concentrate on running a successful business with what you might call normal commercial style clients, and that's what we'll keep doing. So we we uh, we we'll have to be sure that we're running a, a, a successful business, and the defence sector becomes, um, I guess you might say, uh, icing on the cake. Um, we need to we need to uh, present a. A, a business that that can survive shocks and i was listening to you talk about uh you know the rubber business in bendigo i think it was uh or was that in geelong i can't remember uh, my yeah, apologies bendigo, but yep. bendigo uh and and so you know so talking about preparing ourselves for the future is that we need to make sure that we've got diversity of clients and uh, diversity of industries yeah. so that if if it is if it is whipped from underneath our feet that we can still survive that shock uh and so so i think that is something that we can take away from our history with the car industry is that you did have these businesses who really only had one one customer and as soon as that customer goes so too does does their business and and we're we're focusing very much on broadening our base as best yeah, we can. Yeah, that's right. So you keep that secure. Prime Minister Cameron Johnson for today. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> uh, my, my absolute pleasure to talk to you. Cheerio. See you, mate. Managing Director there of Rollins Metal Works. And whenever you have conversations like this, Brett, Brett Worthington is your co-host today, that the passion that comes through about our loss of apprenticeships and trades and tech schools, it, it is palpable. There is still so much... Uh, I guess, grief around the loss of that world and the flow-on impacts that we see. I mean, texts here saying, you know, Rish, you need to do a program on Head Start, which provides kids in government school a chance to do their VCE vocational major, which is spending two to three days in the workplace as a part of their apprenticeship. It's a really successful program. That's from Wendy. And others saying trade schools and apprenticeships need to be on HEX, like nurses and teachers. And that's from Christine, who's the wife of a retired tradie who found it very hard to keep any apprentices and she's in Geelong and so it's a combination of everything really isn't it so that's the other thing I kept thinking is yeah we can't just create this industry again overnight it's not like everything just hung around waiting 
Well, and, and the Canberra Dog Park is renowned for a lot of things, and it won't surprise you that, to learn that we talked about the AUKUS nuclear submarine <laughs> deal at the park that I go to. And someone there was an ex-Treasury official, and they said that the joke in Treasury when it comes to these kind of defence projects is they are one of the most expensive employment subsidies in the nation, and that, you know, within Treasury they wonder, would we be better off buying submarines off, quote-unquote, off a shelf, uh, a foreign-built submarine, and spending the billions that you would otherwise not be spending on trying to retrofit them and build them here into focusing our work into other sectors, into getting people into other forms of work. And I think that that's where it becomes a political question about which kind of government would be brave enough to say, actually, this isn't the best use of taxpayer dollars. We should go in this direction. And I think you can all but guarantee it's not going to happen. Well, the Productivity Commission's report today said exactly that. One three hundred triple two seven seven four is our number. You can text as well zero four three seven 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 four seven seven four. Simon Pasini is an electrician. He's worked predominantly in manufacturing, but also represents the CEPU and South Australian members in a range of industries, including defence. Simon, let's go glass half full for a moment. Could this be a huge opportunity for Australia and Victoria when we look at the flow-on impacts? Yeah. Good morning. Uh, Rochelle and Brett. Um, can I can I just go quickly back to Brett's comments in regard to buy them off the shelf and use that money to invest in other industry? Um, an alternative view to that would be what the Conservative government did to the car industry. We had and we had a, a high tech, um, high skilled, high paying um, industry that was just abandoned. So uh, the, the government doesn't have a very good uh, track record when it when it comes to looking after industry. How? What are the first stages? I mean, we, the text flow through saying, well, in order to do this, you know, you've got to get the trades industry up and running again. You've got to make it attractive to school leavers to go work in these areas and you need to have all of the support mechanisms, both financially as, and as well as physically, in order to do this. I mean, how short is the workforce at the moment? Yeah, look, very good question. Um, now, can I, and I, I just want to quickly go back to Cameron's comments as well around um, you know, the frustration with all the work that went into Naval Group and then that contract was abandoned. We did a lot of work too with Naval Group and a lot of work in regard to um, talking to industry about hosting apprentices and um, getting women into uh, traditionally um, male-dominated industries. It was really frustrating for us as well that the Naval uh, Group contract uh, had gone. Now, when it comes to gauging industry support for making sure that there's enough tradespeople and you know, and therefore apprentices, now I, I negotiate enterprise agreements with manufacturing. So a lot of um, enterprise agreement negotiations happening at once. Typically, I have between six and 12 going at any one time. Now, a side, uh, like a side discussion I have with manufacturers is, would you be prepared to host an apprentice for Know, when it was Naval Group, um, no, because no, they've got the problem where they don't have a facility, they're going to need the workforce, mm. but they don't have anywhere to place apprentices. And it was overwhelmingly supportive. And I guess that's for two reasons. Firstly, manufacturers know that they're going to find it hard to hang on to their tradespeople once the demand in shipbuilding takes off. And secondly, like no, in South Australia, we're pretty provocal and everybody in the community wants this to succeed now not just for south australia but for the whole of the country and you know like when it comes to building um naval vessels both frigates and submarines like it's our men and women uh, our sons and daughters that are going to be sailing in them simon um, the defense industry itself has a problem with recruitment and then retaining staff if you've both got the similar issues with getting people in mm. how do you go keeping people in those sectors when you've got them in there say you get someone you've captured them as an apprentice are yep. you satisfied there's enough incentives to keep these people in work for a long time well look <clears throat> our experience has been like a, a, a big issue and probably the primary issue is wages apprentice wages is uh just you know horrifically low <clears throat> typically compared to the rest of industry <clears throat> sorry so um you know, if we're going to be serious about having enough apprentices and and you know, retention of apprentices we need to look at wage levels mm. absolutely and that's come through so many times uh, depending on whatever the program is that we've spoken about that is somehow based on apprentices 
fundamentally it comes back to wages and people just not being able to afford it and that's why we see such a mass exodus even before that apprenticeship is finished. Simon, thanks for your time. Simon Pisoni there is the CEPU, a CEPU South Australian member there in charge of quite a few industries including defence. This text, in reference to boilermakers, it says, 30 years ago, my boilermaker brother-in-law grew up and completed boilermaking apprenticeship in Gippsland, but due to the SEC closure and declining work opportunities in Gippsland, he moved him himself and his family to Adelaide and since have been working on Collins Class subs since. And that was the other thing, Brett Worthington, I was wondering, is whether or not you will see people moving to and maybe feeling like they need to move to South Australia, not saying that it's a bad thing, but especially when it comes to work opportunities, if it's a more skilled and higher paying position where you'll see people going, you know what, I'm going to make the move. I'm going to move to South Australia in order for work opportunities. And I think that it was interesting that you saw the Defence Minister, who's also the Deputy Prime Minister, he wasn't in San Diego, he was there in South Australia uh, for the announcement. Penny Wong was there, they were very much there selling um, South Australia. And what is happening in Adelaide at the time, it's becoming the the space centre as well for where Australia's space industry will be based. And, you know, we hear a lot of these things like the space industry and you think, well, what do we gain from that? Teflon came from the space industry and the Apollo mission. So there are all these elements that aren't going into the submarines, that aren't going into rockets, that would be jobs and producing products that go into other parts of the economy. Whether What that means then, if South Australia becomes the home of all these jobs, how then as a Victorian government, how then as a New South Wales government, do you buffer that? Do you accept that there'll be leakage and people going there? Uh, what can you do to tap into these big defence mm. contracts to say, we can have people in Bendigo or in Geelong or in Melbourne working on these submarines, even though they could be a thousand kilometres away? And if you're a relatively small business owner, I think there will be that fine line too between an announcement like this giving you the confidence that you're going to stay in business or to take on extra staff. But then if it all goes pear-shaped, if it all goes south and you've expanded, you maybe you've increased the loan or you've you know, gone up against, you know, put a, a mortgage against your house, whatever it may be. What risks do you take? How do you manage that risk and sort of keep your fingers crossed that it all goes ahead? So what do you think? Should we be making submarines in Australia? And do you work in an area that would benefit? Maybe you think, you know what, I would move to South Australia in order to get a really good job in this sector. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and Brett Worthington with you. This is an interesting text, Brett. It says maybe the trade route is partially the wrong one. Some of these factories could almost be fully automated. Hence technical engineers, software techs. Maybe uni is a better route. And that's a big part of it too. It's not just the boilermakers and, you know, the metal and folding and bending of steel like Cameron was talking about before. There is all of the tech side of it. And we also we don't have the workforce for that part of of the industry either but it isn't just all bending and folding and heating metal there's so much to this and that you'll have people that will be doing account management where it's you know overseeing the payroll of, of all these people that are out there potentially in the field but also people that are also working with, with computers and i think that finding that mix of where are these employers going to come from like you hear in the news every day the great resignation people looking to leave their jobs that people are leaving others are desperately holding on because they've got a mortgage or their rent's going up and they're not willing to take the risk where do you find these people and it's potentially the answer is bringing them in from overseas which is what's helped grow our economy for the best part of, of three decades but that's going to be controversial if you're bringing in workers from abroad you'll have trade unions that won't be thrilled at that idea but if that person is are they displacing a quote-unquote local worker who could be getting a job it's a it's a contentious issue to manage dave's in frankston and he says as a trade school teacher i believe the literacy and numeracy skills that apprentices are having trouble with and that's a major reason why apprentices are not staying in the trade they have just cut the funding of these programs that help apprentices that are having difficulty in this area mark's in heathmont good morning well good morning um thank you look i think uh of course i know nothing about the subject but because I'm a 40-year-old tradesman, uh, sorry, I've been in the trade for 40 years, um, I think sometimes I listen to these programs and I wonder why we have, have, have a, such a short to medium-term thinking span about solving this. seems to be that if parents want to be attracted, um, they bring the entire family across and have a holistic approach and they mm. incorporate a university where the kids go to school, the school, the university, mm. and they have a long-term approach in terms of absorbing the hex debt, which they know will be attractive to both the kids not having to pay and they have a home they can then pay off and it's like an industrial park similar to the Manhattan Project. 
So you incorporate the entire holistic approach towards uh, kids, family, education, and long-term future. We don't do that as much anymore, Mark, do we? We don't don't do that at all, except Geelong used to be that sort of philosophy by default. But this is is a purpose-built long-term project. We need to have a long-term sort of structure towards the children being trained up in the necessary skills that are flexible but transitional towards certain parts of building the the entire project. Mark, really good to hear from you. And, I mean, Brett, in the past on this program we've spoken about industries and professions where things like what Mark referred to, like housing, that, that support, that wraparound, if you provide housing, are you going to get... The people are you going to to get the the people with the skills that will come and work with you because you solve some of those additional problems and education for kids a wee big part of it because depending on where you move to for work what if your kids can't get into the school well and you look at a place like the ACT which has had huge population growth the population areas where they're looking to develop now don't have the infrastructure uh, that you need to educate people in, in a local environment. You potentially don't have the public transport options to then get uh, to work. And so is it more cars that need to go onto the road? I think it is a more holistic approach mm-hmm. that you need to, to have to not only having these jobs, but then how do you accommodate that person, their family and everything that comes with that? Yana's in Northcote. Good morning. Hello. My name, do you want me to switch off my radio? Ah, uh, yes, that would be lovely, Hold Jana. on, can you just hold oh. on? This is, a, uh, um, this is not um, a mobile, so I'll have to get back to... All right, Jana, we're going to pop you on hold while you go and do that. I'm going to pop you back on hold so that you can go and turn your radio off, but we want to hear from you. Our number's one three hundred triple two seven seven four. Professor John Spear is the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Research Impact at Flinders University. Do we need to take a more holistic approach, John, in order to get the workforce that we're going to need? Um, yeah, absolutely. A project of this scale, um, both at the South Australia and the national level, requires uh, a long-term workforce development strategy uh, linked to um, building Australian industrial capability, that is in, engaging as many South Australian and Australian companies in the supply chain for the new nuclear-powered submarines as we possibly can. Um, look, we, we've got to remember that we've had a submarine um, manufacturing industry in Australia for a long, long time uh, with the manufacturer of the Collins-class submarine, and we have a significant shipbuilding industry here in South Australia uh, supported by significant facilities in Western Australia and other parts of Australia. So we're not starting from scratch here. It's really important that we realise that we've got a strong foundation to build on. Um, but of course, you know, this is altogether a different scale um, in terms of its uh, complexity in particular, and it introduces a new technology, obviously, which is nuclear power. And it's in that respect that we've got to be able to really accelerate um, and increase the, the sort of the body of skills and capabilities that we've got in Australia uh, to do that well. Um, that's one of the reasons why we've partnered with um, uh, some overseas institutions, uh, the University of um, Rhode Island and also the University of Manchester, to take a, an international approach, if you like, to tra- transfer of knowledge and skills here to Australia, send some of our people over there to learn from the best of the breed, to be exposed to the kinds of facilities that they've got there, but also at the same time to build the necessary infrastructure here to be able to make sure that when people work in this industry, they are safe mm. and they understand the kinds of technologies that they're working with. What, how this going to nuclear, just talk us through what does that mean from a workforce perspective of, of how you prepare people for that? Well, there's a lot said, isn't there, about this idea of nuclear stewardship and, and that means that um, everybody who works in a nuclear-powered submarine workforce needs to have a base level understanding of what that means and you know, why it's fundamentally different from uh, a diesel-powered uh, submarine and, uh, and, and of course, nuclear safety um, it looms large in all of this and, and it's a heavily regulated sector both in the domestic power as well as the, the nuclear-powered submarine sector. So um, there's a lot of regulations and law and policy that surrounds this and it's important that everybody who's working either in the shipyard or in the submarine mm. itself has a base has level Where are we currently at with that, John, though, in terms of what percentage of skilled workforce do we have at the moment that has that knowledge? Oh, look, it's very few people have an understanding of that right. at that's all. Low. So <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, very low. That's negligible. 
So that, that's, that's one of the things that we'll have to do very early on uh, for everybody who's being trained up is introduce that base level nuclear understanding uh, and to the companies that are involved in the supply chain as well. They'll have to, uh, they'll have to reach minimum standards in order to be able to participate in the supply chain and it will be the same for any workers in the industry too. Uh, having a qualification is one thing but you also need to have minimum experience as well. So, uh, and of course, we won't be able to do that for a while until we've got a, uh, for the operational shipyard and we've got access to the training facilities that are necessary to, to do this quite bespoke kind of education and training. John, we've talked a lot about the trades side of it, but how does a university adjust what programs and mm. courses it might be offering when you see a big deal like this? Well, of course, we will sort of work at the interface between the between vocational education and um, university education. There's a lot of articulation between the two, so we try and credit um, students who've done vocational education and training courses towards our degree programs. Uh, we'll be introducing a whole range of new kinds of programs at the master's level and the doctoral level for people who will be engineers um, and scientists working in this sector. And uh, it, there's a particularly sort of voracious appetite in the nuclear sector for um, the best scientists, the best engineers, but they're not the only ones too. It's very, very important to understand that uh, there, are, there are a lot of business schools, project management schools, accounting skills, legal skills also loom large in this too because, as I said, it's a heavily regulated industry. And so um, do you and, have the skills mm. from an education perspective? Like, do you have the lecturers? Do you have the professors? Do you have the people at that top, top level in order to train people that might potentially be coming through and making decisions about their future career and think, this is what I'm going to train in? Mm. Can you teach them? Uh, yeah, well, we can to some extent, but we recognise that um, just as it is the major challenge for the industry itself, uh, the university sector and Flinders University have to gear up. We've got to fast track the development of new capability. And the way we're doing that is, is partnering with uh, overseas um, institutions like the University of Manchester and the um, University of Rhode Island that have, had, that have decades of experience in that. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We simply need to to partner with those international organisations, if you like, and establish a sort of mini-university AUKUS, if you like, that enables us to, to fast-track um, building the capabilities at the, at the local level. So we'll bring people from um, those institutions in the US and the UK here to work with us on the ground, and we'll also send some of our academics over mm. to the US to the UK to fast-track their development. Professor John Spear, thanks for your time. That's a pleasure. Pro Vice-Chancellor of Research Impact at Flinders University. And that's the other thing, Brett. There's engineers, you know, there's scientists as well. There's, when we think about the potential job opportunities and career opportunities, it's not just how you physically make the boat. You know, it's not just about boilermakers, as interesting and as, as important as that role is. There's the academic side of it as well. And the trouble is, do you take a punt and, and quit what you've got now, potentially, if you want to change and risk the short-term pain of not just, obviously, lower wages, but in a period of uncertainty around there, what it means for in inflation and how much everything is costing, uh, giving that reassurance to yeah. workers that can take the jump, that there will be an industry there for them, that's going to be the struggle. We have Yana back in Northcote. Good morning, yeah. Yana. Good morning. What did you want to say? I wanted to salute um, some other kinds of technical schools, the girls' technical schools. I was a teacher at two of those in Adelaide years ago. And um, because I understand why we are looking at male, you know, at, at apprenticeships because of the, the submarine, you know, question at the moment. But those technical schools were also very valuable. Okay, we don't have typist pools anymore, but girls were taught typing shorthand, bookkeeping, domestic science, which would be wonderful in the catering and hospitality industry and dressmaking. And in the schools that I taught in, because this was in Adelaide, I also taught them German. So, and, um, and this is not, I mean, when we talk trades, I guess there is maybe sometimes from a bit of a hangover that we're talking about men, but absolutely not. I mean, when we're talking trades, that can be male or female i know when i was growing up the majority of you know young people that went to tech school were boys because uh, i shared a bus with them so you know what I, <laughs> oh god there was very few girls that went to tech schools but yana absolutely you're right is how do we introduce more women into this world and into this sector as well
would you work in this industry? Are you already thinking about it? Maybe you have a small or medium-sized business where you think there could be potential for you as a result of the submarine announcement. one three hundred triple two seven seven four. Warwick Long. Significant steps being made in Parliament today. It's history in the making. Filling in for Raf Epstein. So we're in the uh, hold the bike stage of toddler parenting with our energy markets right now. Well, I think that's probably what we're where we're at, unfortunately. Libby, have you still got it? I think I probably have. Was today at sixty-five? I went out and swam a kilometre. In the pool or in the surf? Oh, absolutely in the pool. I'm not ridiculous. Warwick Long. Weekdays from three thirty on ABC Radio Melbourne. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Michelle Hunt and Brett Worthington with you. What are the on-flow impacts? What are the work and job opportunities as a result of the submarine deal? one 222774 Diane Dayhew is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Apprenticeship Employment Network. Diane, how do we encourage more people to get the skills but to then, I guess be able to afford to get the skills and to stay in this industry. What are your major concerns? Uh, good morning, Rochelle, and good morning, Brett. Uh, look, it, that's a really good question. I think um, the attraction of this project is going to be a key to its success. I think that there needs to be a lot, a lot of communication um, to to young people and to mid-career people about the opportunities that are out there. Uh, I think um, one of the um, very important messages needs to be about the the length of this program, the the security of the jobs that are available for people once they complete their training. And um, something that um, Brendan O'Connor, our minister, has been talking about is the fact that um, the completion of apprentices is very much tied up with a job that's that's in sight and we're talking about very secure jobs and and great outcomes and completion rates for apprentices that are involved in this type of project. Diane, do you think people would be aware of what happened with the the French contract being torn up and now moving to this new contract that they would have the confidence that this Mm. one will be holding? Are, Are people aware of that level of detail? Look, I mean, <laughs> I guess um, it depends on who's watching the news and uh, and the um, the the um, awareness of um, people that would be applying for these um, jobs. Um, my interest is in the entry level roles, which is in the apprenticeships. Uh, and the employment of apprentices through this project. And uh, yes, I mean, I guess um, th- there has been a lot of discussion about uh, in the news, hearing about the French um, contract being torn up, but uh, it, this is um, an entirely different um, circumstance now. We're talking about um, secure commitments, contracts are signed, partnerships are in place, and the, the actual jobs are being discussed and the project um, development is being shared. And what does job security in reality look like, though? Who's responsible for that job security? So Brett decides tomorrow, you know what, career change. I'm going to go and I'm going to work in this industry. I'm prepared to take the pay cut, whatever it may be. Who then gives Brett the confidence that that job is secure? Well, I mean, I guess because this is a this is a uh, a, a, a national um, project and a, a project that's. Um, that's um, run by government. So I guess it really is a, a, a communication exercise by government to talk about that security and to talk about um, what the employment arrangements would be like and to really clarify with people what their experience would be. So as an apprentice, making it very visible, a potential apprentice, that ensuring that the, the types of jobs that are available are very visible and also um, explaining what your Mm. experience would be as an apprentice and the types of jobs that are available as well. And how do you do that? How do you let people know? Because, I mean, even, for example, I remember watching something on 7.30 just recently and watching someone who does build ships for a living and watching how they go about it. And I remember just walking away from that story thinking, oh, my God, people do that day in, day out. What an incredible (laughs) job. At the end, you're like, I built a ship, you know. So it's more than that. Like, How do you tell people and inform people and educate people what the potential jobs are? 
Look, I think the exercise um, of the South Australian Premier going out to Barrow um, last week and talking to the apprentices on site was was very clever because it actually um, was a sharing to the Australian people about the types of work that you'll be doing. And there was um, discussion about the, the high-level welding that needs to be done, and the um, and this is about the uh, the higher skilled jobs in terms of building the actual submarines, um, going into confined spaces, and the type of welding that has to be done. We're talking about skills that we actually do not have currently in Australia, so we are going to be learning. Um, by um, looking at what um, what the process is overseas, what happens in the US, what happens in the UK, and the skills exchange is going to be incredibly important. And but what we're talking about... Oh, sorry. No, go. Continue, sorry. sorry. Uh, what we're talking about is um, there's, two, there's, I guess, two stages that we're interested in in the vet sector. First is the, the building of uh, the... Um, the production line in Osborne and also the um, expansion of HMAS Sterling in WA. So there'll be construction jobs that will be available um, for the, the building of those sites. And then the second part of that is the higher apprenticeships area that we're talking about in terms of the on-the-job training and building the submarine. And I guess you can take that back a step further and we actually have to build the facilities where people can be trained in order to build the submarines. So there's quite a a lot of water to go through. Diane, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks, Brett. Diane Dayhew, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the National Apprenticeship Employment Network. But that's interesting, Brett, to think about where we're going to train people. Those buildings have to be built. So <laughs> there's work. You need builders to build the facilities that will then have the other workers come in and work in to then build the ship. <laughs> it's Pretty incredible. much. Dr. Brendan Walker Munro is a senior research fellow at the University of Queensland Law and the Future of War Research Group. We've already discovered today, Brendan, that it's more than just manufacturing. We're talking engineers and scientists. Can you sort of talk us through what some of the major jobs are that you see coming out of this deal? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the key things that's kind of um, important to remember about AUKUS is that, yes, it's about the submarines, um, but it's actually so much more than that. There's a whole lot of advanced technologies that are actually spoken about in the in the agreement between us, the UK and the US, that, that haven't gotten as much uh, exposure in the media. So we're talking about things like uh, exchanges for undersea robotics. We're talking about quantum technologies. We're talking about hypersonic weapons. And so all of these sorts of technologies are actually covered by the AUKUS arrangement. Um, that sort of everyone's very distracted by these big shiny submarines that we're due to get. Yes, yes. Brendan, um, um, so to what... I, sorry, no, you go. I was just going to say, so it, it it's not just um, the, the idea that there's going to be uh, all these sort of manufacturing jobs that are going to be out there. Um, that's very much true, but we're also talking then about, well, there's also all of these other manufacturing jobs for bringing all of these other technologies into real life as well. So we're at a point where we're, we're all pretty much accepting that this is the, the the deal and this is all going to happen. Paul Keating had an intervention last week where he was quite critical of, of the AUKUS deal, but we spent a lot of time getting caught up on his theatrics. To what extent do you think as a nation we have considered what this means, uh, both for, for us as a nation and, the, and then the broader flow-ons from that? Um, I think it's one of those things that we have accepted almost implicitly in terms of um, this was something that was originally unveiled uh, when Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister and there was sort of much fanfare about bringing us into uh, this, this alignment with the US and the UK. And I think that conceptually it's something that we, um, as, as a nation in terms of Australia, probably uh, were, we were okay with that. I think one of the things that's actually been really uh, important with the new Albanese government is they've actually sort of gone and interacted with our Pacific partners a lot more because I think there's also, again, um, this this idea of, well, we can focus on the UK and the US as our, our sort of uh, two big brothers, if you like, but there's, there's actually a lot of other people um, involved in this area that we live in. And so I think actually having those ongoing um, conversations with our Pacific partners is actually really important to providing that level of security. 
It's incredible the sort of jobs that it would or could create. I mean, I've never even heard of the job undersea robotics and, you know, what that would look like to work in that industry. So when we think about the workforce that will be needed over the next few years in order to get this job done, how much of it will be guaranteed to be local and to be localised and how much of it will we actually have to rely on people from overseas or do those jobs and those skills not even exist overseas? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I think the um, current estimates for the submarines, for example, is that we need somewhere between two and 300 PhD qualified nuclear engineers. Uh, and I think that we, we may in Australia have somewhere about one tenth of that, I think, from the, the reporting. So if you take that kind of uh, shortfall and you apply it across things like robotics and quantum technologies and all these things that AUKUS talks about, um, you're actually talking about a really large number of people, um, very highly qualified, very niche capabilities that um, at the moment we just we don't seem to have available. I think that the general sort of vibe across a lot of the Australian universities is they're aware of those things though and that they are taking steps to um, build that pipeline and start to get these sorts of uh, jobs through. Um, but that said, there is, I think, certainly a space for us to be able to reach out to our partners internationally to be able to bring those people into Australia. Um, the obvious concern, I think, um, then is if we're bringing these people into Australia and training them. Um, very recently, there was an article in The Australian uh, talking about the training of uh, potentially uh, Chinese hackers in offensive cyber in Australia and sort of saying, well, Potentially, people might come here to Australia, learn these skills, and then actually go back and start to work for uh, an adversary within our security environment. So I think there's some sensitivities, mm. uh, and these are all things that we just haven't worked through yet. Dr. Brendan Walker-Munro, thanks so much for your time. No problems. Thank you. Senior Research Fellow with the University of Queensland Law and the Future of War Research Group. Brett Worthington, people at the moment on text, anyhow, if this is a case study to go by, are sort of sceptical as to whether or not they would jump ship, if you don't mind the pun, change careers here and to put all of your eggs into a basket of something that do you have that guarantee? Do you have that job security? Do you train in an industry? And do you expand your own business in order to train people in an industry when it's still years away and we just don't know what might happen. And so it'll be interesting to see if governments are willing to do some wage subsidy type programs and see if they can do it in a way in which might attract someone to go and do it. But it's also, you know, this will, some of these jobs will be really hard work. And as someone who had to climb on a roof like a hot uh, cat on a tin roof helping his dad install solar panels in Menindee... Um, I'm glad he did it so that I potentially didn't have to. So it's not for everyone, but there are people that could be getting into these sectors and how government and industry team up to work through that to supply these workers because I'm not sure what happens if we can't find the workers. Where maybe, do they come from? Maybe undersea robotics is more your thing, <laughs> Brett Worthington. Is it much cooler, I would imagine? <laughs> oh, wow, cooler, yes. And Temperature-wise, at least. <laughs> yes, and robots, hey, they're cool. Brett Worthington, thank you so much for joining us from ABC Camera. Do you want to come back and hang out here again? I would love to. It's been a real treat. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Until then, take care and we'll speak with you soon.